Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we talk about intelligence and evolution in a variety of different animals. Some animals went from being in the sea to on land and others went back into the sea again so we trace their evolutionary history. Plus we find out about some amazing intelligence in birds, some ancient farming animals and we find out about what made mammals so special when they survived the mass extinction that killed the dinosaurs. One of the things that most of us understand about biology is that at some stage we went from being single-celled organisms and microbes in the oceans to more larger creatures such as fish and so eventually some of those fish made their way onto land and became the variety of species and animals that we see on land today. And that path of evolution we're all reasonably familiar with. But if you look at things such as dolphins, whales, manatees and so on, you start to understand that some animals went the other way because these animals are mammals and mammals for the most part are warm-blooded lactating creatures that live on land so how did these mammals end up back in the ocean and through careful studies of genetics bones and animal species history we've managed to trace the evolutionary path of some animals from the ocean to land and back to the ocean again so when you go from living on land, you develop a whole batch of skills and abilities, and these are encoded in your genes, that help you adapt and cope with life on the land. But once you go back into the water, obviously some of these become obsolete. You don't need, for example, the ability to think, pick up things in the air because you're now surrounded by water. Likewise, your metabolism and your skin and your muscle structure all changes as well, just because you're under different force loadings and different conditions. And chasing through gene trees over 18,000 genes in them over a long period of time. Researchers from Oxford University, Maria Chickner and Nathan Clark, have shown that there are actually three major specific events that occurred in these genetic developmental histories. Because by chasing the trees and following the path back through the various genes, you can see that they are bursts, steady points, and more bursts again. And these actually represent changes, big significant changes in the genome of the creature's that relate to obviously specific events. And they did this across five different marine species. Uh, Bottlenose dolphins, orcas, walrus, the weedle seal, and the West Indian manatee. And by looking at the diversity in the genes across these species across time, they actually learned a lot about the actual evolutionary stages that these animals went through. Now, what they did was they identified three main evolutionary themes. A burst of adaption, so initial okay, we, we need these areas first, and then an additional relaxation where the sort of the gene stabilized for a bit, followed by another constraint or a response to some type of marine environment or event. So they noted that in particular areas that we sort of make sense for them to have accelerated gene development in, such as genes that for encode a lung surfacent protein, so it helps them deal with breathing underwater or do deal with their diving deep into the water, as well as things for the sensory system, muscle function, skin, connective tissue. Now, some of the other genes weren't accelerated, but rather decelerated, things that were basically held back because, well, we don't need those as much, which is equates for about 11% of the genes in these animals that they were studying. All in all, it's not just a simple process of going from land back to water, and evolution doesn't happen immediately, but the gradual process and stage makes for interesting study, especially looking back over the long histories of these animals. 
And these techniques of studying the gene tree and tracing which genes are getting more focus and accelerating their growth and change more than others could be used as well to study adaption in a number of other environments from the sea to high altitudes to desert or even underground. ideas that we have is that when dinosaurs roamed the earth they were the dominant species and mammals such as small rats and so on were sort of scurrying around barely struggling to survive until you know the asteroid or whatever major extinction events occurred and wiped out all those dinosaurs leaving us mammals to sort of take the reins and take control of ultimately leading to us much further down the track but research done by dr nick longridge from the university of bath and particularly the milner center for evolution have studied and found that over 90% of mammal species that were alive at the same time as the dinosaurs, so in the Cretaceous period, when major extinction event happened about 66 million years ago, over 90% of them were wiped out right along with the dinosaurs that inhabited the land. So how did we get to this point? Well, these researchers at the Milner Center for Evolution studied all mammal species known from the end of the Cretaceous period in, in North America. And what they did by studying this period is that over 93% of them became extinct across the, the change between the Cretaceous and the Paleogene boundary, right? That that, that kind of geological timescale boundary, um, which we also used the same qualification test to check for dinosaur extinction. Because it's not just as dramatic as it might be, they didn't all drop dead at the same time. It did take some time for them to go extinct and die off. And by analysing the published fossil record from North America, from 2 million years before the boundary and about 300 years after the asteroid asteroid impacts have hit, they compared species diversity before and after. And you can see how quickly animals and species recovered. Now, some species, which is most of the dinosaur species, were at a high level before and somewhat increasing and then dropped off. Others, such as the mammals, were at a, some point afterwards and then sort of managed to recover after the dip, recovered much faster. That's leading to them obviously surviving and the dinosaurs dying off. Now, the species that are most vulnerable to the extinction are obviously ones that are rare. The less of you are that are around, the less diversity there are in the genes, the harder it is for you to adapt, the less evolutionary speed you have because there's a smaller population set as well, and you tend to go extinct more easily. That, that makes sense. But also because they're rare, they're, fossils are less likely to be found, which also makes analysis, analysis much more difficult. The species that tend to survive are also more common, so we tend to also find them. So that means when we analyze a fossil record, it's biased towards species that survived. So when we start to include more data and account for these biases in the, in the way we're doing the statistical tests, we can actually see the severity of the extinction event in a lot more detail. So this, this kind of inbuilt systemic biases in terms of <laughs> you only find the ones that were more common and you ignore the, the rare ones is why we hadn't really picked up this before. But taking these things into account, we can actually see that after the asteroid hit, most of the plants and animals would have died, right? So, so that means all these animals and the food sources as well died off, which means that if you're a big creature such as a dinosaur, you need a lot of food. And if your food-based food sources die off, you're not really going to be able to get enough to survive. But if you eat insects that are already eating dead plants and animals, you could probably get by. 
which makes sense. So with little food, only small species survived. The biggest animals to survive on land would have probably been no larger than a cat. As most mammals were small because they were inhabiting that niche and the dinosaurs were inhabiting the super large animal size, it meant that the mammals were already at an advantage. They didn't need much food to survive. But even amongst and all those things taken into account, they still died off a lot more rapidly as well because their food sources were still killed and knocked out. So with less food available, mammals, as they were smaller and relatively common, were able to bounce back from the big impact. But it did knock out over 90% of all the mammal species that were around as well. And so mammals did, you know, have a huge drop-off, but they rebounded back much more quickly than thought. The recovery took 300,000 years, which is very, very quickly in evolutionary timescales. And they not only got back to the previous level they were at, they were doubled in that period. So there was a double diversity of species. So just because they did well after the extinction period, we tend to assume that they weren't hit hard by it. But the reality is they were hit very hard, at least for the analysis that we've done in North America. So sometimes from great chaos comes great opportunity and mammals were certainly no exemption to that. We like to think that humans are a step above the animals. We have great inventions, we have culture, we have language, we have tools, we have clothes, we have buildings. We undertake things that change our environment in a way, such as farming or domestication of animals. But that's not something that's just unique to humans. There are animals that use tools. And there are other animals that farm. In fact, they've been farming for a lot longer than we have. And a team of researchers, led by Professor Eric Roberts from James Cook University in North Queensland, have found the oldest known example of fungus gardens and farming in a fossilised termit nest that's over 25 million years old. So termites are clever little insects. They often harvest and collect different types of things. They also build incredible mounds that you may or may not have seen in their large colonies. They also hollow, hollow these out and make underground nests or chambers. But they don't just do it on their own. What they often do to support their food sources is collect fungus. They farm them and they put them into these chambers in their hollowed out mounds. And what these little big chambers of fungus do is they help convert plant material into actual a more easily digestible food source for the termites. So basically, they build a big mound and how they carve out some rooms and then they put into it fungus. And this fungus actually helps them out by making their plants into a more usable food source by breaking it down. So whilst the termites aren't eating the fungus, they are certainly using the fungus as a tool in the farming process. And by analysing fossilised termite nests from the Great Rift Valley in Africa, which are in sediment that dates between 20 to 25 to 30 million years old, we can see this in practice. We can see the fossilized parts of the ants. We can also see the fossilized or sampled trace samples of the fungus that was there as well. By starting to use these fungi as an assisted tool and basically becoming farmers, it meant that the species of termites could survive in larger areas in a wider range of places, which is one of the reasons why they spread across this region in a rapid way with a lot of different diversity. Because they domesticated crops and livestock, they actually managed to survive pretty well and enable them to spread from the less 
favorable dry savannas in Africa into all the way across the world and migrating all the way across into Asia and other parts of the world. So this means our previously estimated idea about the symbiotic relationship between termites and fungus it pushes it back almost 31 million years ago, which is a long time to consider. And it just goes to show that the things that we take for granted that make us different from animals may not exactly be the case. Now, we've talked about before the clever way that some animals, such as crows and magpies, use tools to help them achieve a task. Ravens as well have been known to employ and pick up sticks or a variety of other objects around to help them achieve a task, get some food or get get at something in particular. So we tend to ascribe this kind of behavior with a large amount of intelligence, thinking like ourselves, if someone is able to use a tool, then hey, well, that means that they obviously got some kind of really strong thinking going on. It certainly does mean that birds do have uh, a flexible and adaptive behavioural part of their brain that really adapts quickly to environmental situations. And some birds, such as the Indonesian goffin cockatoo, has the ability to use more than one type of tool. Sticks for probing and, and raking food into reach, as well as dropping stones, balls into tubes to knock out rewards from the inside. And this is, this is great, because it means it shows that they're not just undertaking tool use, which is important in of itself, but they're also taking something even more important, the ability to delay instant gratification for a better outcome later. And in humans, we call this the marshmallow experiment in human psychology, where you put a marshmallow in front of a child or a couple of toddler, and you say, look, if you don't touch this or eat this, you know, for three minutes or five minutes or however long period of time and see how far they can get, they will get you know, a whole packet of marshmallows or something more substantial, right? So there's this, if they can have either have one now or many later. And it's a great test of patience and human condition. But when applying that same test to animals, you actually get really interesting results. Some animals aren't able to logically come up with that concept. And uh, it's not like you can explain it to them verbally. You have to basically teach it to them non-verbally through basically apparatus set up and experiments. And basically, when doing this with a variety of birds, such as the goffin cockatoo, we can see something similar happen. Now, this research was done at the University of Vienna. And to really test this, they used two different types of food. Cashew nuts, which are the bird's favorite food, as well as pecan nuts, which the birds like. But look, if there's a cashew nut available, they're totally going to have the cashew. And they also gave them two tools. An apparatus, which is only operable by probing it with a stick tool, but not by dropping a ball inside. And an apparatus, which could only be operated only be operated by dropping a ball inside, but not by probing with a stick. So basically, the food is away in a different place, and you need to get out of it one of two ways, and there's two different types of food. And so the apparatus was then placed on a table, and a choice between two items, uh, either a food item and a tool, was offered. Once one the bird had picked up one of the items, the other was removed. So there's no going back. They had to ba- they forced them basically to make a choice. And after a while, the cockadoos started to flexibly adapt their decisions to shoot the different the different situations available. So if a pecan nut was on offer immediately, they could just take it and eat it, or a tool to get out a cashew nut in a container, 
what they would do is that they would start to actually take the tool because they could know that they could get at the cashew nut if they took that option. But not only that, they wouldn't make that decision if the tool that was on offer wasn't the right tool for the situation. So if they had a stick and the only way to get at the cashew nut was with uh, the ball dropping um, apparatus, then they wouldn't take the stick. They'd take the pecan nut. And that's really interesting because the birds are actually doing really complex decision-making as well as risk and reward analysis. Now, this shows a great parallel between the cognitive abilities of these parrots, these cockatoos, with other research that's been done in primates because primates have been shown to, to exhibit this similar type of decision-making ability and tool use. So this is some great work being done at the University of Vienna that helps us understand the intelligence and behaviour of animals. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we found about some interesting evolutionary history of mammals surviving the extinctions and going back into the waters, other farming crafty animals like termites, and crafty birds using tools. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.